Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. It is the 3rd of the 5th of 2020. We are talking Sweden, we're talking lockdowns, we're talking about having trust in other people, Michael, in uh, in just really believing in each other. But before we go to that, I do want to just briefly mention that there is a Red Sea poll out today. Oh, you have? Which looked at how um, Fianna Fáil and... Uh, Finnegale and everyone is doing as they get ready to enter government together. Yeah. Uh, Michael, would you like to break the news? 14%. This is 14% for Fianna Fáil, that is, as opposed to 27% for Sinn Féin. 35% for Finnegale. Now, it is worth remembering that it's not that long ago the people were asked their opinion of Finnegale and they ended up giving them 20%. But the big news is, I think this means that Fianna Fáil are now at their lowest since 2011. We're basically at the Troika have just arrived and the Minister for Finance didn't know they were coming line level of popularity. They, in the election directly after the crash, they got 3% more than this. Uh, this is the end, this is the, the final result of eight years of Michal Martin desperately hauling the party to the liberal centre and uh, per, and left in the pursuit of the urban vote. And it has utterly alienated and disenchanted the people that might vote from outside of Dublin. Indeed, a lot of them have been. It has completely... The people that he's been wooing desperately with flowers chocolate, scurry, have looked at him in disdain as if clutched their hands to their chest and said, as if. Because what maybe Michal now is finally going to understand the kind of people he wanted to vote for, the kind of people who vote for Social Democrats, for the Labour Party, for Fine Gael, would just never vote for Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil could stand on its hands, strip itself naked, paint itself with rainbow flags. And I don't know, whatever become life, it, not life members, but cosmic eternal infinite members of the ACLU and the Irish Campaign for Civil Liberties. And they still wouldn't vote. They wouldn't even invite them for coffee after dinner. Yeah, we, we saw that after the election with the Dublin strategy and the glorious failure that that clearly was. Strategy, you're very, very kind, Gary. Strategy, what a big word. There is there is one good thing out of this uh, a little way in which Fianna Fáil can be an inspiration to the country in its time of need. Yeah. Michal Martin has very successfully flattened the curve. Oh my God, he has. He's taken out, he's taken that curve, he's brought a hammer and anvil to it and he's flattened it. I mean, yeah, we take 2011 as the resting place, there's that brief upward moment, but then he pulls it right back down. Oh, he does. And now yeah. we're back in 2011, as if nothing has changed. And I'm confidently predicting, as long as Michal is in there and following this policy, Fianna Fáil ain't going to be, con is, is not going to be contagious. The infection rates, in fact, we're going to see just a gentle drop off as that that core vote does basically the only thing it can do, which is gradually die. Oh, it's one... I mean, we'll see. We will see. You'd have to say the, this should be the end. Absolutely. The nail in the coffin of the putative government coalition. It should be... Oh, it should It should be the, the long-awaited end of Michal. But we'll see. Maybe, God knows, the people in the party may be so traumatised now that they've just morphed into a 
Finnegan, they have become the fin- what Finnegan were for sixty years. One thing I, I did I did find quite amusing is that if you took all of Fianna Fáil's uh, percentage and every single voter who was undecided and moved them to Fianna Fáil, they would still have less than Sinn Féin. Oh God, that's not good. That's got to sting. That's a paper cut. I mean, Sinn Féin are one percent off double Fianna Fáil's level. Yeah. God, that's that the natural party of government. Natural party of government can't govern itself. Needs to rediscover itself. It's lost the capacity for opposition. Like a like an elderly woman, <laughs> go out into the desert, take some peyote, and and come back presumably. Come back with a sense of who you actually are, yeah. and who you want to be. Uh, it's early days yet, but I think that Fianna Fáil could do worse than electing Alan Kelly, their leader. <laughs> I think it's something they should consider anyway. Michal's candidate will be a rude. Oh, God, yes. And, and Ivana will be the campaign no, manager. No, no. It'll be Lisa Chamber in drag as Aidan Arudon. Oh, that's a scary, scary picture. I hope there are no children listening because that's nightmares. That's nightmares for a week there, Gary. That's a little kid. Oh, mummy, I dreamt a Lisa Chambers came into my room. Oh, no, no. In oh, track. I forgot that. Lisa Chambers, Martin's protege, lost her seat in the last election. She did indeed. The people of Mayo showed rare discretion in that. Well, I mean, I think there were. we shouldn't take any wider political lessons because that was quite a special election for local reasons, for shall local, we say. Local, local. For local reasons. Remind me, she went, did she... Did she go for the Shannon? She did go for the Shannon. She's currently in the Shannon. She's got the Shannon, did she? Hmm. She got the show. Somebody else got the Shannon, and that was deeply disappointing. Also, um, imagine that the Shannon being disappointing. Who who would have thunk? Anyway, we will we'll come back to this maybe at a later date. I, just, I have a lovely image of someone putting the polling result in front of Mihal and telling him it's going badly, and him just looking up and going, "Is this this is not meant to be played like golf?" <laughs> the low figure wins, doesn't it? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Oh, it's like cricket. I should have never been let do this. Who let me do this? Who's responsible for letting me do this? Yes. I'm in charge. <laughs> Who let me charge? Who are these people? Anyway, speaking of people not being in charge. Sweden. Sweden and its, uh, its way of handling COVID-19, which is... It's a weird narrative I've seen emerging around Sweden, which yeah. is because it was what Sweden is doing is terrible and will kill everyone, and then it became okay. Well, it's it's not going to kill everyone, but it's not the best way of doing it, and now it's become well. You see, nowhere else could do what Sweden is doing because it's a very high trust society, so it might work there, but it wouldn't have worked anywhere else. Well, and- I would, yeah. And I, I do get, shall we say... I think there may be structural reasons why you can do certain things in Sweden. But, okay, let's look at a couple of things that, I mean, there's a, everybody loves talking about the numbers, right? Yeah, I, I think, just before we get to the numbers, we should actually talk about what they are doing and what they are not doing. Oh, that's important. You, you quoted The Guardian, right? And I think that's actually a good place to start. Because one of the myths that is present, strongly present, is I think that a lot of people have the notion that the Swedes are out there Drinking pints of beer in sort of rugby huddles and dancing to the 
to thrash metal while rolling around on top of each other in a kind of a brazen defiance that they're basically life is going on as normal. The Guardian ran a story basically saying that a couple of weeks ago, which was picked up by the the press across Europe and provoked serious pissed offness within Sweden because it's a couple of things happening. First of all, this, and we'll talk about what they are, the Swedish government has imposed quite a number of restrictions and regulations with sanctions. And at the same time, the Swedish pop, Swedish population in general has changed its behaviour quite substantially as a result of the existence, both as a part, as a trust exercise, maybe, but also simply because when there's a pandemic going on, people, wow, change the way they behave. Yeah, I mean, businesses in Sweden are taking shot after shot. You're not quite seeing what you see, what you saw most of the world where businesses just shut down, but you are seeing like fairly strictly done social distancing and um i would imagine i mean like bars restaurants stay open i'm actually not sure if that's the best thing for them it might be better if they could close and claim the insurance well actually that's not that's not a bad point. i mean if you look at the retail sector which has within restrictions been allowed to stay open because there are restrictions about how they manage things there are social there are strict social distancing measures in place the retail sector in stockholm is being absolutely mortified all over the city, there are the the large stores are running sales of fifty to seventy percent off, and just starting in the last little while, there are reports coming in regularly of well-established businesses going bankrupt, and which is an odd concept. If you like, that's a, that's not happening here because everything's shut down. Either the insurance is kicking in, or else you get government support. The Swedes, not quite so much. So re. Hotels. Hotels are empty. I mean, it, it was quite interesting in that the Swedish, their chief epidemiologist is Dr. Anders Tegnell. Yeah. And he was making the point that um, if we get a, a vaccine in the next 18 months, we are going to be very, very lucky indeed. Right. And you can't keep schools closed until you have a vaccine in place. It's unscientific and it's not possible. Yeah. Also, you can't lock down the country indefinitely. People are eventually just going to totally ignore you and go out anyway. Yes. So they basically said, like, we, instead of... Because when Britain was talking about doing something similar, and they basically reversed that in the face of um, a great deal of media pressure and rampant leaking from the cabinet in a way they didn't control, Yeah. they, they were talking about a lockdown fatigue, Michael. And you might have remembered, but that was that concept was widely derided in the press. Yes, that was a notion that I, uh, which never never made much sense to me. That and none actually, so much of this doesn't make sense to me. Which is the level of certainty that people seem to have about everything when we're talking about something that we've never done before, and we're also talking about human beings. And human beings will eventually behave in a certain way, and it may not be all of them, but it'll be enough of them. Will. And that's why we have laws, because you have, when eventually people get tired of doing something that they're being made to do, they stop doing it. They had a thing in pro- called prohibition in the United States, where people weren't allowed to buy or uh, sell alcohol. And you know what, in the, the first bit, it was, it was quite good. And then people got tired of it. And the total consumption of alcohol in the States actually possibly even went, in certain cities anyway, went up. But... Yeah, it's this, the certainty. They're absolutely, no, no, that's nonsense. That won't happen. But then there was the Ferguson report, Gary. That was the real thing. The the, the modelling. The modelling. People are putting 
a great deal of trust in modelling. And I can understand that because they don't know really what they're doing for the most part. Because no one could know what they're doing because this is a new thing. Yes. But complex modelling, there is this assumption that the more complex amongst the public and amongst politicians, that the more complicated a model is, the more set in stone its results are. And it's very much the opposite. Complex modelling is very, very difficult. And if you get one step of that wrong, badly wrong, you can throw the entire thing off, as we found out with some of that modelling, where numbers just started to sort of go up, then down, then up, then down. And this wasn't due to any improvement in social distancing or anything like that. It's also one of the why I find it quite amusing when people talk about the OR number, um, because it's very difficult to actually get the OR number, because we don't know how many asymptomatic infected there are. No. So we can give the OR number for, for let's say, people who end up in hospital, or people who are badly ill or get tested, but we can't give the OR for the overall infected populace, because we don't know how many there are, because... So many of them are going to be asymptomatic or very mild. Um, but we throw it around as if it, you know, it's a great number. It's also not a long-term sustainable number. So there is this wonderful bit of, we've got it below one, and all we needed to do was shut down everything. Yeah, when it starts off, if you're going to, if you're going to respond, you're going to have to have a model, because in the absence of experience, you're going to have to try and you're going to have to model some kind of theoretical response. And that's fine. And I and I think that when people come out with the criticisms post-fact of actions, which were clearly, which turned out not to have been effective or to be counterproductive, but were simply things we could not have known. For example, there's data coming out now, we'll call it data, it suggests that there is very, that children under the age of 10 do not act, of, act as vectors. Mm. That's weird, yeah. right? That's just weird. Now, it looked a bit initially that they what they were was that they were asymptomatic vectors that they weren't displaying symptoms didn't mostly get ill but they would carry the disease because it's just weird that they shouldn't carry it now it's there's this big there's a study the meta analysis by who who say they don't actually infect adults so i see people saying oh my god there you go it was an absolute waste of time closing the schools that was a really bad idea but there's no way in the world anybody could have come out at the beginning of this and said, you know what, I think the kids won't actually be able to infect adults. So let's keep the primary schools open for children under the age of 10. That's a, that's an example of just 2020 hindsight, mm-hmm. which is a waste of time. I do think, however, Gary, uh, I don't well, that we have started, we are now getting into the situation where we have seen different countries with different responses. We, we're starting to understand the thing. And I think we should be moving from a model-based approach to an evidence-based approach. That's not to say that you go, you pick up all the models and throw them all out. I don't know. But we have we have the beginnings of data now. We have different experiences of what looks like what works better and what is most effective, what is least effective. We should be moving towards a situation where we're making cost-benefit analysis on the basis of what's happened and happening. And I just wonder if we're still, if we've kind of got stuck in a model approach here. And that when we look at Sweden, the big thing that seemed to be, it seems to be not that people want to learn anything from the Swedish experience, but they're desperately cheering on the virus because they want Sweden to be wrong. Yeah, I mean, Sweden had for a while the um, per capita, the highest virus deaths in Europe, primarily because of their nursing homes. Yes. Um, which they fully admit they made mistakes with at the start, and that they didn't treat it as seriously in relation to those as they could, 
And by the time they brought in bans on visitors and things like that, um, it was already largely too late. I mean, there, but the problem is, is that the Swedish debt rate is no longer the highest in Europe per capita. No. In fact, it's, uh, it's now 243 deaths per million. Ours is 241. Uh, well, I had, <laughs> I have 264 against 260. Let's see. Sorry, mine is from April the 30th, so I'm two days behind. I'm from yesterday. Yeah, but 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 the point is anyway. Belgium, Spain, Italy, the United Kingdom, France, Netherlands are all above Sweden. Now, but here's a question, Gary. That I I just maybe you have your, an opinion on it. I, my understanding is that I think that there's been a failure of communication, generally speaking, about various approaches. I remember when this whole debate started first, listening to a number of epidemiologists. And if I understood them correctly, what they were saying was that in the end, there may not be a massive difference. Just simply, if you look at simple decontextualized modeling between, say, a mitigation and a suppression model, that the actual number of fatalities at the end of the whole process in two years, three years' time isn't that different. That the purpose of the suppression was not ultimately to save lives globally just from the say that COVID will kill this number of people that if we go this way it will kill fewer people but rather because COVID is exist doesn't exist in a mathematical vacuum but rather exists within health systems and the purpose of suppression here was to avoid what had happened initially which was the breakdown in the health service which is already act pretty close to working at full capacity anyway and it wasn't really a the difference between two models wasn't but on the belief that, oh, if we do it this way, thousands and thousands and thousands of lives will be saved at a cost. But rather, we have to flatten the curve because otherwise the collateral damage caused by the collapse of the health service will lead to consequences which we can't manage, rather than the consequences simply of the the, the virus itself. I mean, yeah, that that is the, the basic gist of it. It's to avoid a system where the health uh, system itself is overwhelmed and people just start dying due to uh, inability to access medical care, which is what we saw in Italy. Um, Sweden's... Sweden's That was the concern. That was the concern in Sweden. On the modelling that we're using and the critics of Sweden, around three weeks ago, the health system in Stockholm should have been overwhelmed. But it hasn't been. And it still hasn't been. In fact, the Swedish hospitals seem to be holding up quite solidly to this. Now, they are, in certain parts of it, reported as being running to capacity. And they wouldn't want a whole lot more. But Sweden does look like it is plateauing. It does look like it's plateauing. And that's part of what they've done. So, people, as I said, people seem to think Sweden has done nothing but... What they have done is they've closed certain facilities, they've put in social distancing, and they've told people over a certain age to cocoon. Yeah. And it is it is an explicit herd immunity strategy. Unfortunately, the only actual way to stop this would appear to be herd immunity. We just don't want to tell people that. Yeah. Because I think the Swedish are right. Vaccine, we could get very lucky and have a vaccine by the end of the year. Probably will not have that. So the Swedish approach is basically get everyone who is most at risk from COVID in their homes, away from people, let the virus spread in a controlled fashion through the rest of the population, 
who are highly unlikely to die from it. While maintaining the, inter- the integrity of the health system. Yeah. So you could remove the, they could remove the social distancing if they just wanted COVID-19 to run rampant. Yes. But then the health service would be overwhelmed. Whereas there are now arguments emerging, and there's not really a lot of data on this saying that the majority of the benefits of the lockdown came through social distancing and increased hygiene and uh, hand sanitation rather than the actual lockdown itself. That improved things, but it was only a fractional improvement on what had already been done, Uh, which I think is part of why there is now a degree of what I would describe as nervousness about Sweden. Because if Sweden pulls this off and hasn't shut down their economy, Mm -hmm. then voters in the rest of Europe may look at their governments and go, so why, why is everyone unemployed now? If it wasn't necessary. It's worth pointing out, again, just to give a sense, that it isn't the case that this is even sweet, that Sweden is operating without costs. The Swedish economy is predicted to contract by 7% this year. That's true, and that, that is a horrific uh, contraction. On the other hand, uh, Pat McDonough is saying that they expect, I think, 22% unemployment rate. Yeah. And people are saying, oh, it'll bounce back quickly because of the nature of the recession. But I think that very much depends on how long this goes on and how readily available cash is afterwards. Because Well, I think that for good or for ill, cash will be available. I think we have entered into an age where inflation no longer exists. So, But as regards how long it goes on, that's, that's the open question. I mean, wh- whether or not we get a vaccine, I have decided I'm going to be positive and upbeat about this. That there are now, at the last count, there are now more than 90 um research facilities busily engaged in in uh, vaccine development the american uh, germans uh, with pfizer and the oxford crew seem to be in the lead however you can't put a bet on that you can't assume that there will be a vaccine in super lickety split time because if it turns out that there isn't, then there is no plan B. No, I mean, this is the thing. When people speak out against herd immunity and they say that the general, the general approach seems to be that it's not worthwhile because it accepts a certain amount of deaths will occur. Uh, but a certain amount of deaths will occur anyway, whether or not we accept it. But it hinges on the assumption that after you have COVID-19, there will be antibodies in your system which will stop you from getting reinfected with COVID-19, hopefully for the rest of your life. And that appears to be the case. But at the time Sweden made the decision to go this route, that was not shown. And in fact, there had been those cases in South Korea where people who had been infected were now said to have the infection again. That actually, uh, a research team looked into that in South Korea. Those appear to have been false positives. So that cleared up and it now looks like that's the working way. But when Sweden and Britain did it, they didn't have that information. And they basically said... I th- well, I think they actually made a reasonable assumption that if that's not the case, we can't do anything about this anyway. Well, yeah, I, I, I remember asking early on in this, talking to the economic historian Steve Davis over the ASI, or the Adam Smith, the Adam Smith, yeah, he's the Adam Smith, about that. I said, yeah, but what if, what if there isn't immunity, or the immunity is only like for three or four weeks, or what, what, what then? Which he said, well, they, those circumstances, Michael, we are fuck. We are actually. He said, we're then we're in deep shit. I mean, that's the thing. If there's not herd immunity, uh, COVID nineteen is just going to keep spreading, and there will be no vaccine. There will be nothing to it, and eventually, it'll just you'll either have had it 
or you'll be cocooning, or you'll be dead. The thing about it is, and I'm not saying this flippantly, I think one of the problems, genuinely, I think, one of the problems with uh, talking to people about this approach is calling it herd immunity. I think what you need, they need to find a different phrase. General prop, general pop, generalized population protection or generalized population reinfection disability or something. The word herd makes people feel very uncomfortable because it's, de- there's a, it's a dehumanizing thing. We are just a herd. We are not individuals. We're not even human beings anymore. With cattle in a herd, and I think that they, they they and there have been failures. There was failures in Sweden, and there were certainly failures in England about this. Because one of the things that was that the, the Boris at et al were was criticised was oh, there's oh, everybody you know people are going to die anyway. You know, goes suck it up, uh, but you know it'll be worth it in the end. When it had been very clear from the beginning that their advice was that those people over a certain age or those people with conditions which exacerbated their risk, would have to be protected. Those people would con- would cocoon and those people would be isolated from the population. That they would have that there there would be special consideration. It was never the plan that old people would be thrown on the bonfire. Ironically, here where we care so much, that seems to be I- what actually what we have pra- in practice have done. Our HSE and our chief medical officer told nursing homes that they were private nursing homes that they were wrong to put in a ban on visitors after we knew that uh, COVID-19 would particularly would just devastate that demographic and also they clo- refused to close the HSE facilities or uh, ban visitors from the HSE facilities themselves at all but there's also a weird contradictory messages coming out like at the same time as around the 11th of March the March is kind of an important date here because it's the day the WHO declares an pandemic. And it's also, Sweden and Ireland, it's interesting to compare because the first reported death was in both countries was on the 11th of March. Although now it looks like that there is actually a post, there's a post-mortem from February which has come back in, which shows the first death actually took place briefly. But the same, on the 11th of March, there was a statement uh, by somebody, one person in the HSC absolutely saying that hospitals were quite right to clamp down on visitors and to restrict accesses. When at the same time, somebody else was saying at a senior level to nursing homes to open up and to have people in and to allow visitors. If you remember, the HSC at that time was saying that their primary objective was to stop the spread of panic. Yeah, and you know what, Gary? I am waiting. I look at the maps. I look at the graphs. I look at the surveys. I have still yet to see anybody, even people in the, you know, the over 80s bracket, to die of panic. But if we want, 1,286 people have died of COVID-19. So I think it's COVID, 1,286, panic nil. I think it, it, what, I still have, nobody has yet explained to me what precise behavior was it that they were so terrified of that they had to regard panic control as more important than the protection of the health of the elderly and the vulnerable. What did what Gary did they imagine we were going to do? I don't get get infected people, rub up the get rub, strip them naked and rub up against them like cats? I, I mean what was it? It's some kind of weird animistic ritual of protection? I, I you know, panic. And you've heard it, I heard it 
A colleague of ours was actually at a meeting where a senior person specifically said, no, 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 we couldn't do that. The most important thing here is stop people to spot panic. Anyway, I, I lose the run of myself. <laughs> but getting back to Sweden. So I, I think that this, this line we're seeing that Sweden, it could only happen in Sweden because Sweden is a high trust uh, country, is in some ways both media and government I tended to go either one or two ways when this started. They either underplayed it or they overplayed it. And in both of those cases, they don't want to be wrong again. So I think they're presenting Sweden as sort of this thing that couldn't be replicated anywhere else. So that if it does turn out that Sweden's approach works and works well, then uh, their views won't appear incorrect or the things they did won't appear destructive to the economy, for instance. And instead, people will just go, okay, we did what we had to do. Um, and I think that's why you've been seeing all these stories about the Swedish debts. The Swedish debts are, are high, you know, ever-growing. Mm. But the thing, the thing with the strategy is that you know that... Well, uh, even with the debts, Gary, it's worth pointing out that the Swedes themselves would say that considerable amount of the debts were failures mm. that were not necessary. It was not intrinsic to the plan that these occurred, by which I mean... They now recognise they failed to properly prepare and to protect the internet protocols in the old folks' homes and the care that's, homes. That's weird, isn't it, Michael? The government saying that they made mistakes. Because I seem to remember our, I it was Sam <laughs> Harris, saying that no mistakes had been made. No uh, mistake. But weirdly enough, we have almost the same debt rate as Sweden. We which do. Which is saying that terrible identical. mistakes were made. Almost, and this is having gone from a place where there was actually the Swedes were twice and three times our rate. We are now almost identical. No, they've admitted, and they also said they they have a significant problem which they had underestimated and didn't handle well, which was in those highly uh, the densely populated areas, principally occupied by uh, recent immigrants and much higher density. There are things about Sweden which are unusual. Swedes do not live together. Over for I think it was forty four percent of Swedes to me live alone. Now, which is interesting because I was talking to a German doctor. I think I was saying to you, uh, and one of the questions I asked her was about, but why? What was, in her opinion, what was the, some of the reasons why Germany seemed to be doing rather better, say in comparison to Holland or France or Switzerland? And one of the things she said was that Germans don't live in families. Uh, Germany has never had the kind of problems we say as that we have or the Brits have historically had regarding housing. So Germans tend to move out of the house fairly early and they live by themselves. They don't live in families uh, at a rate which is not that far below the Swedes. So that may be an element as well there. There may be, there may be some practical things going on here. It's also, there may be a trust element. You say about it making me say, remember, what's, you know, one of the things I love about Sweden which nobody talks about. And there are things which are good about Sweden, even though Americans seem to think it's a socialist paradise, which it ain't, is, do you know the rule regarding the post on the, the Prime Minister's desk? No, go on. Every single piece of post on the Prime Minister's desk has to be published. If you send any letter that's anything that the, the, that comes in or out of the Prime Minister's office, has, and that's, been, that's not one of these modern transparency things. That's been the rule since like 1703 or something. One one thing I have enjoyed is the approach of the the approach to this within Sweden, like how Sweden's uh, media are talking about this, 
and how their government and um, how Technel, the, the state epidemiologist, is talking about this. Because they're being presented around the world as if they're playing, you know, this this sort of Rich. really risky kind of game. Yeah. And when you look at how they're talking about it, they kind of think that, they're like, no, this is a sensible middle of the ground road approach. You know, social distancing, some things are closed, elderly people cocooning, and the rest of you had just gone fucking mad. <laughs> like, nope. what you're doing has no science behind it. You're just, like, you're just in your bunker with a shotgun wrapped in tinfoil, <laughs> rocking back and forth, saying it's going to come to me. And they're like, you can't keep, like, you can't do that forever. We can do this as long as we need to. Gary, you can't do that because you know what? If you do that, the virus wins. There is debate in Sweden about this. There is, but trust in the government and the government's popularity have all gone up. I think about 12% since this started. But there are, yeah, there were the lots trust of levels. Anders, Anders Tegnell is the state epide, epide, uh, epidemiologist. And he actually has one of the highest trust levels of any public figure, higher than the government, is in him. Apparently, there is a um, there is now a market in uh, t-shirts of Tagnell on them. <laughs> he was, apparently they just really like him, and yeah, there's a really high level of trust in him. But I don't know his point is a good one. But the, they have there are virologists and other academics who've written stinging letters into the papers saying you will pay for this, we'll all pay for it, and this is not. Do you know who's actually? I don't know if you if you if he's, you came across this. Do you know where the harshest criticism of Sweden is coming from? America. No, no, no. There's a, a newspaper called Global Times, which comes out of the China. I, I know the Global Times. I uh, I actually was writing about it recently. Yeah, we were. You, you came up the other day. You were, say, you were say, recommending we should all read it. Well, yeah, it's, it's actually worth doing it. But it is an arm of the Chinese Communist Party. Um. It has accused uh, Sweden of capitulating to the virus and has called the country a black hole. No, 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 no. That wasn't my favourite. My favourite <laughs> was um, Sweden's herd immunity strategy, cold-blooded, indifferent to life. <laughs> that's brilliant. Don't tell me that's from a Chinese paper. That is from, uh, yeah, that is from the Global Times. No, that's, oh, that's just too much irony. Because I, I, I think that makes place. sense, though. Because if you, like, if you're the West and you've destroyed oh. your country's economy, and yeah. Sweden thing is actually, you could have done this without this, and uh, you wouldn't have so many unemployed. Still a bad hit, but not as destructive. And then you just see the Chinese, like, we welded people alive into apartments. Yeah, well, they did that, but they also, they're taking people out the back and... <laughs> And, and taking their organs out while they're still alive to sell them to rich Westerners, which isn't, you know, massively high in the scale of having respect for life and being cold-blooded, you know? Yeah, they also point out that Sweden tried to humiliate China with a lame trick like severing ties with Chinese cities. The Swedes have closed down all the Confucius centres. They're all gone. Uh, there's a big issue in Sweden regarding China put in prison a Swedish publisher called Gui Minhai, and the Swedes have been very annoyed by that, and they've just and they've also been apparently suspicious of the activities of the Confucian centers generally, anyway, and that has pissed off the Chinese. But just on the issue of Sweden and just why the Swedes 
are behaving this way as opposed to others. There's an interesting piece of social psychology also going on here. I think in 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 one respect, it may be the Swedes are doing this because Swedes are rather slightly odd. Odd, they are both high. They value social cohesion very highly, but they also value individual liberty very highly and autonomy. So they kind of like the idea of being like. I think there's a part of the reason is because everybody else is doing it differently. They're now on Team Sweden in the same way as now you have to be on Team Ireland. But one of the weird things is in the States, for example, there was a guy came uh, from Slate magazine who is Swedish and came back to Sweden to write about Sweden. I was horrified, Gary, horrified by what his country was doing. Now, Slate, as you know, the reader, the listener, Slate is an organ of the left, shall we say of the progressive left in the United States. Yeah, occasionally it'll publish something interesting, but for the most part, it's like down the line. In most, pretty well all the studies done by social psychologists and, and anthropologists, there is, a, there, is a, a, there is a predictor factor in politics, in whether you're left or right, on how you react to disease. And generally speaking, right-wing people tend to be more sensitive sensitive are sensitized about problems of illness or infection, and the left wing people tend to be more relaxed about it. That's why you tend to find, uh, say, right wing totalitarian regimes more often in countries where you have high you have problems with infectious disease. But this it's gone it's all gone backwards now in the states and in England. The right is being all loosey goosey about the virus, and the left is all in a panic about it. And it just goes to show that it just if, you, if you're... While human nature has its presets, if you, if, you, if you get it on... If you... That the power of the team is so powerful that Boris made one decision. So all of... They've all climbed on a board with the Boris train and all the left are against him. So now it's the left are desperately calling for more control, more impositions, more policing... I mean, it's a really weird dynamic when you think about it, that it's the the left demanding the police have more power to throw people in prison for going for a walk and that little bit too far from their house or going for a swim because they live 10 miles away. They shouldn't be swimming in the sea. Anyway, as I said, there's no, on, on the subject of lockdown, there's, there's no real data on what is and is not effective as such. I mean, there's... There's very mild like discussion papers on it, but no one yeah. has actually done it because this doesn't really happen, so it's quite difficult to tell if it works. But I'm just curious, Michael, just on your view, do you yes. think a lockdown will, in review, have been a success or a necessary thing to do? And do you think it should continue going for the next 100 days? Well, I gave you actually... If you remember a few weeks ago, I, I, I said I was going to do something to annoy you, which was to express an opinion without any basis in evidence or fact. And it was my, it was and it remains my opinion that we're going, we will eventually discover that the, the very large bulk of the gains that you get in controlling contagion are achieved by those first strategies of social distancing, improved hygiene, hand washing, hand sanitizing maintaining spaces, and probably, I, I suspect, although we'll see, avoiding very large, you know, large gatherings, that kind of thing, that 
while you may get some benefit out of the last, those very, very severe lockdown measures, it will turn out, the question will be whether or not the cost of the benefit was proportionate to the benefit achieved. And I suspect that you probably, we may probably, we may decide that it wasn't. I also think once we understand who is at risk better, as we do now, but also how the thing works and how we can protect ourselves. We need to start recognising that if we want the thing, if we want to, the economy in the country to keep going, and it's not a question of, oh, you you value money over lives. Lads, if if we keep going to the extent that we do genuinely fuck over the economy, that will cost lives. Yeah, both in mental health, we know we can, there's actually models already out there for, increases or decreases in GDP and the increased toll on debt they have. Absolutely. There's a link. There's a, a, a link which is rooted in a hell of a lot of well-established research that increases and in, decreases in GDP, making people poorer will give them, will increase, will decrease good health, increase bad health, increase disease and lower, lower life expectancy. I mean, one thing that has been really interesting to, to watch this and it becomes kind of more clear as we move on, is the impact of democracy, of the political system, on the way countries have to respond to this. Yes. So, for instance, it is very difficult to do what Sweden did. I remember when we were talking about when Britain was talking about herd immunity, and I was saying it's an unusual thing for a democracy to do. Yes. Because it's the sort of decision that, even if it's the right decision, as I suspect it is, it's very easy for opposition politicians and for media to shape that into a narrative that says, well, they don't care about people. They want your grandparents yeah. to die, yeah. as we saw in, in England. I think they failed. They failed in their communications. Absolutely. It looks like they, and the difference looked like Sweden just accepted, this is what we're doing and we're going to defend it. Whereas in Britain, things just started leaking from cabinet. Then they came out and they're saying, no, herd immunity is not what we're going for. And it became this really confused mess. And it's... um. It's interesting that a country effectively reversed part of its policy based entirely on communication strategy, but that's the impact of democracy. And we saw that yesterday, yeah. because ministers had been asking the Houlihan give them something, something yes, that they yes, could go to yeah, people absolutely. and go, listen, you can go see your relatives, or you can, you can do this, yeah, just yeah. something they could give people, because politically, they are under a lot of pressure to let you see your relatives, or to do things like that. All sorts of stuff. And um, did you notice yesterday, Michael, that Leo made his speech? Do you know what they cancelled, though? What? The uh, daily briefing with Hulin. Oh. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Now, I I don't know if you saw the quotes that were going around saying that ministers in cabinet were imploring the advisers to change their advice. Now, that's if that was actually what's happening, then that's just dumb. The advisor gives you advice. You're the cabinet minister. You're the politician. You make the decision. You have to weigh up all the other factors that are available to you and come to a conclusion. But you don't. It's ridiculous to say to someone, "Could you give me different advice, please?" One thing I did actually quite dislike um, was Simon Harris standing up and saying, "I was thirty five hundred, and he was like, we have saved thirty five hundred yes. lives.' Yes. That's nonsense. Nonsense. Absolutely nonsense." 
I mean, maybe by the modelling they have, that's the case. But the modelling is a black box. We don't know what goes into it. They could pick literally any number. Uh, and say, so also, most of that modelling would have been done earlier. If you, I don't know if you remember the government's initial projections for how many <laughs> I do, be. yeah, yeah. We're going to have a million infected, and most of those half a million would be infected within three weeks. Basically, it was, it was Gom- Sodom and Gomorrah and the... Yeah, the, the the angel of death was coming soon. Yeah, but th- that's perfectly understandable because they don't have enough. In- well, they didn't then, and I suspect they still don't now. But that's have enough the- information to actually create an accurate model of spread. That's the problem, Gary. I mean, yeah, we it, we have you have to at some stage you have to start to begin to move from the pure model to start to take it. I, there was a really interesting thread on Twitter, which is not something I often say which was put onto my timeline by Dr. Ida Milne. Ida Milne is historian a historian of disease. of disease. And she she she's published a book on the on the pan, the flu pandemic. I say Ida's probably getting more business these days from journalists and interviews than she's had for quite a while. I actually haven't seen her on anything, but I would suspect you're right. Uh, well, if they, she hasn't, they should be, because she's bloody good. Anyway, Ida um, was quoting a doctor who um, had been the lead in the 90s of the development of what's called evidence-based medicine. Yeah, and is now a professor at Oxford. Uh, yeah. Trisha Greenhelg. That's it, yeah. Yeah, I saw this. I don't, yeah. Did you see the thread? Uh, yeah. I thought it was very interesting because she was talking that, you know, that there are times when you have to start to move and you have to look at the observational side as well. You have to take in the experience, the experiential data, that there are times when it's neither scientifically nor morally acceptable to say, no, no, we need randomly control, we need controlled trials yeah, and I, everything. I, I think we... we... I mean, this person was saying, taking the principle that you don't act until you've got perfect certainty uh, of stance when hundreds of people are dying daily makes no scientific sense. And so evidence-based medicine is not actually a great option. And I think we can see that in masks. We've started to see professors of uh, various parts of medical uh, disciplines come out and be like, yeah, masks would have been a great idea. They're still a great idea. It would have been a great idea. Did you see there's a new study out? I haven't. New study out of masks, basically confirming, in fact, amplifying the 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 results of the Yale study, talking both about uh, uh, con- protection, uh, but principally about the re- reduction in contagion and also re- 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 con- re- reduction in deaths. I mean, we we were we actually we talked about this before. Not in we didn't mention it in. In terms of uh, evidence-based medicine, but you were talking about about the fact that you that you know it, the way a doctor and an engineer look at numbers in such radically different ways. Yeah, you say to an engineer, "Well, we can give you a forty percent reduction in risk." Engineer goes, "Whoa!" Doctor goes, "Not a hundred percent." You know, does this stroke work ninety nine point nine nine percent recurring? Well, then it's not really an effective vaccine, is Which it? I actually find deeply amusing because a lot. A lot of modern medicine, a lot of the pharmaceuticals used, the um, the research into them is not great. Before we finish up here, I I want to share with the, the, the listener, but particularly actually with you, Gary, because I think you will enjoy this. In the context of this debate about, you know, the fact that everything has to go through what they call RCTs, Random Controlled Trials. This is an essential part of evidence-based medicine. And by the way, she wasn't saying, let's get rid of evidence-based medicine. She's saying... It's a really great thing, but we have to understand it within contexts as well. Anyway, there's a I, I came across a paper 
uh, right? Um, the from the BMJ, which is basically, uh, I suppose, in a sense, it's about the the need for randomly controlled trials. The title of the paper, Gary, is parachute parachute use to prevent death and major trauma related to gravitational challenge. Systematic review of randomized controlled trials. Is this going to be? We don't know parachutes work because we've never done a randomized controlled trial but on it. Or is this going at, to be a we threw something out of a, an airplane? No, no. Let's look at the objectives first. To determine whether parachutes are effective in preventing major trauma related to gravitational uh, challenge. Results? We were unable to identify any randomized controlled trials of parachute intervention. So, their conclusion, and I think this is I think you will maybe enjoy and agree. As with many interventions intended to prevent ill health, the effectiveness of parachutes has not been subjected to rigorous evaluation by using randomized controlled trials. Advocates of evidence-based medicine have criticized the adoption of interventions evaluated using only observational data. We think that everybody might benefit if the most radical protagonists of evidence-based medicine organised and participated in a double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled crossover trial of the parachute. <laughs> I, think really, I don't know. It's, just, it's very good. It's, you know. Okay, lads, you want a randomised control with placebos of the parachute? Organise one. <laughs> This one has a thing that looks like a parachute, but won't slow you down. I, because what the, the point is, they're saying that the, the, the strict advocates are saying people's experience of parachutes is simply observational data. Well, that was that was a lot of the problem we saw with masks as well. The people said that there's not a lot of high quality studies on this. Yeah, which to be fair to them, there weren't in relation to this issue. And that was the line. Do you remember the line? The evidence does not support it. It wasn't. They didn't say. They're no use or they don't work. They said, the evidence does not support it. Yeah, but you, you can refute that with a simple, like, oh, it would do nothing to help you with a simple, but how could that be true? That, who was that? What We came across that recently. Somebody was talking to some their father or something, wasn't it? Oh, it was, yeah, it was some educated professional talking yeah. to their father. It was like a blue-collar worker. And he said, yeah, well, yeah. The, I mean, the evidence says that masks, you know, there they, would be no help. And his father looked at him and said, but how could that be true? Yeah, he said, just sat there and went. Ah, uh, experts. Well, but then lamb- said, uh, thinking about pi mu over beta tending. I don't. Know. He said so. Ask him anyway. And that's that's actually some of the best medical advice that's been <laughs> given out during the COVID nineteen situation. I the amount of public health officials who have either lied to the public because they thought it was some sort of noble lie about masks or about um, how you should be able to go visit your grandparents in a nursing home, and it would be fine. The grand! This is astounding. I mean, at the first real test of these people's expertise, a lot of them were just like, well, time to treat you like idiots. <laughs> and yes, I lied to you, but you, know, you should trust me on the rest of this stuff. It's like the WHO. The WHO, I, I don't care what the WHO says anymore. Whereas before, I was like, eh, all right, you at least know something about this area. But there is an, an interesting point there, that we live yeah. in a society that's formed by experts, but no one has the ability to actually tell if those experts actually know anything. All they have is their trust that you are an expert. 
And at the time you lie to people, why would they trust anything else you say? So you've destroyed your own expertise. And I think a lot of these people don't realise that it doesn't matter how good they are. It matters what people think about them. Yeah. And when you erode trust in any institution, it's a very dangerous thing. Very, very, very dangerous thing. Anyway, it's Sunday, so I'm sure everybody will be desperate to get out and enjoy their two kilometres. Soon to be five kilometres, Gary. Soon to be five. I mean, five kilometres. You can go beyond that. I've talked to a lot of people who think that two kilometres is the total limit you can go for anything, which is weird because there's no actual limit on how far you can go for a necessary journey. It's only for exercise. Yeah, but my understanding is that if you went beyond two kilometres and it wasn't a necessary journey, that you your 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 heart explodes or something. Well, as as I said, Michael, from talking to Gare, that at checkpoints, chicken wings and ice cream are considered necessary journeys around here. Oh, okay. Strawberries are being soon. I hope throughout day because that's five kilometers away. So I'd be worried about that. And the new potatoes is there are new potatoes in in Bano, and I would normally be driving today to get them, but I don't know if that would be considered a necessary journey. Well, I mean, you're keeping up the uh, economy. So you're right, it's not a necessary journey as we've decided. <laughs> anyway, it's I'm I'm the the period in like a year. Let's say three quarters of a year. Yeah. Where a quarter of the country is unemployed and people are going, Right, yeah, no, you dealt with that. But you also did this. I think it would be a good time for Finnegale to be out of uh, government at that point. Although I will say it is a great leveller. In that now Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have destroyed the economy. This is true. But if this government, they will, they will at least have the opportunity to avoid absolutely nuclear bomb style destroying it because, and we will finish on this because we absolutely have to. There was a, an interesting observation done on, again, modelling, admittedly, Gary, modelling on carbon reductions and the estimated reduction in carbon. Uh, carbon uh, this for will be around eight percent reduction. So, in other words, if this is correct, now people know what you have to do to achieve a seven percent reduction in your carbon footprint. I'm wondering, will people say, "Okay, yeah, uh, that's okay. Let's go with that." Seven percent year on year reductions, or will they say, "Are you?" F- Fucking see, get out of that guy. I, I do like the idea that Miel Martin sat down with the Greens and they went, 7% reduction and we'll have to cull the national herd. And he went, this is an acceptable and reasonable price to pay for me getting into power. Yeah, I mean, that genuine, at that point, why they didn't just take him out and drop him into the bog, I see do. see Eamon O'Keefe behind a window just screaming. <laughs> anyway, folks, have a good Sunday. Have a good week. We will be back again on... Wednesday? Wednesday. And and on a very positive note, this poll may have killed off any chance of an actual government forming. Which is always a good thing. Because I would imagine there is a room full of people in Finna Fall just taking out the pre-sharpened knives. <laughs> but then again, oh, no. they've let them do worse to them. They have. They have. So until Wednesday, we'll say, mind yourself, stay safe, stay home, goodbye. All the best.